The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. I am joined today by Charlie Worrell. Am I pronouncing your last name mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Worrell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by Charlie Worrell of Crime Lines, after I finally figured out how my Zoom works. So you you just said that you were you were you were texting with our mutual friend Josh Hallmark yes, about some yes. important true crime stuff. Yeah, well, it there's a crossover. Um one of our favorite <laughs> one of our favorite real housewives is going on trial this month. And she's okay. facing a lot of time uh, for fraud. It's a federal case. She's facing 20 years. She probably won't get 20 years. But, I mean, if she gets convicted, she will go to prison. And so th- we were discussing that. So it's a crossover. It's a crossover. So it was it was true crime. I thought you guys were just was, chatting about the housewives. Well, we were. And then we started talking about her, which then turns into true crime talk. So, yeah, it, it's a progression. I saw his social media post this morning where he said he was trying to uh, – come up with a gift for the murder of crows outside of his <laughs> his office windows. I was going to suggest to him uh and maybe you relay this to him when you uh when you get off of here that I was thinking if you first like lull them into a sense of security, I was thinking like a poster of Moira Rose. Yeah. Like on the window facing the crows, then they'll be <laughs> set at ease cuz they'll know that he's on team crow. Yeah, yes, absolutely. I will I'll pass that on to him. Josh, when I met Josh, <laughs> he lived in Brooklyn. He uh-huh. didn't own a car because he was in the city, and then he moves to the Berkshires, which I'm from New England, so I'm very familiar with the area. And I was like, you know, isn't that a little bit of a change? And now he's named all the wildlife on his property. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and if I get the name wrong, then he's like, no, you're incorrect. That is not Frank. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, sorry. Um, it's It's been a shift watching him shift to this new life. Yeah, he lives out in the car. What's his, is, is the one he posts about the most is the woodchuck that's outside of his house all the time, or groundhog, whatever. Yeah, I think they call that in the Northeast. I think that's Frank. I think that I think one so is too. Frank. Yeah, but your recording studio is like immediately putting me into a happy place. You have like the <laughs> like the most colorful. If you guys could see this video, I know. Uh, Charlie has like a black wall, and then like giant. Bright, vibrant colored flowers. Even your windscreen is bright red. Yes. Yeah. The um, flowers are a local listener. I actually met her through the Generation Y because she also listens to them. And so we were at a Kansas City meetup. But she made these for me because this is, it looks like a black wall. It's actually a moving blanket (laughs) to dampen Uh the sound. And I started doing YouTube videos and live streams and people were just staring at a blanket. So I said, I need something back there. But because it's a blanket, you can't really hang anything up. So these are made out of paper, and they're literally hot glue gunned to the blanket. So it looks very (laughs) colorful and nice, but it's like super ratchet. (laughs) But they look nice. It's a fantastic backdrop. And the moving blanket. So my first studio, I I was recording in my garden shed for a year. And that's what I did. So once you got inside, it looked like a studio. But what I had done is bought a whole bunch of black moving blankets. And had draped them 
in a big square around my area that I was recording in to dampen the sound. Yeah. So I, I, I too have had a uh, moving blanket studio like yourself. I didn't have pretty flowers on mine, though. Yeah, it's a PVC pipe and I have LED lights strung up. I mean, it looks pretty nice for being a blanket fort. <laughs> Do the blankets go all the way around or are they just behind you? They, they go all the way around. I'm in my basement and so it's like all, you know, concrete floor, um, drop right. ceilings. It just drop ceilings like half the panels are gone because it's also next to the utility room. So it's not. It's not the greatest place without treating it with something. So I did the blankets all the way around and it. I mean, the sound's been great. It's really worked out. Yeah, it sounds it sounds amazing. I had a I'm I'm shooting a documentary for one of the cases I worked on Truth and Justice this past weekend. Or they were here for like 4 days and they have messed up. I almost didn't make the Zoom meeting cuz <laughs> they had messed and I just realized I'm sitting here they messed up all my lighting. I'm like blinded right now by the light in my face. Right. So if I look like I'm squinting and, and cringing, <laughs> it's because they have my LED light cranked to the, mm-hmm. the full power right in front of my head. Yeah. So so we actually met for the first time in where were we? was that was it Kansas City? I forgot where we were for true crime. The podcasts. summer, yeah, it was in Kansas City. That's right. It was it was in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And that's when Josh and I kind of hijacked your uh, uh, <laughs> your your panel. It was. I was like, thank God Bob is here when we. <laughs> When we we have this panel, it was um, one of the people that was supposed to be on it, like at the last minute, it's like, I'm not coming. She was coming from St. Louis. So I thought, okay, for sure she'll make it. And mm-hmm. then it did it. Then she couldn't make it. And then it was like, it was Josh and, and two others. And then I was like trying to facilitate it. And you got in very late <laughs> and missed right. other After things. completely missing my things that I was supposed to do. Right. And so many people were there to see you that I told Lisa, I said, well, put Bob on my panel if we need if we need something, because I need somebody and people are here to see him. And then you and Josh just owned that panel. It was amazing. It was great. <laughs> we started we just said a bunch of dirty words that people weren't supposed that we weren't supposed to say in public. <laughs> I just yeah, yeah. <laughs> the entire panel. <laughs> It, it was, I mean, it was a, it was a great conversation. Uh, unfortunately, there were recording issues, so it didn't get recorded because I was supposed to release it in my feed, but, um, which is really unfortunate because I thought it was a very great conversation on how we handle terminology, sensitive topics, that sort of thing. Yeah, I was bummed out too when Lisa said that the the recordings had got messed up because I was yeah. excited to listen back to it. So you're from Kansas City, so you're right in the same neighborhood with the Gen Y guys. Yes. Mm-hmm. At that uh, at that same event, that was when uh, Justin, ca- I still give him shit because he casually told me about this amazing party that he was going to that <laughs> night. <laughs> that none of us were invited to? Right. I was like, I was like, because I remember my flights were all messed up and I was stranded. And, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm just going to be here doing nothing. He's like, oh, hey, man, we're going to this great 4th of July party and there's going to be this and that. I'm like, oh. So I'm not invited then, or <laughs> he eventually pity invited me to to oh, his nice. party, and then my flight got off, <laughs> so I didn't have to go. But I still haven't well, forgiven yeah. him for for rubbing in my face all the fun he was going to have, and then not inviting me. I know it was. He's like talking about this party. We're all like, "You're not inviting any of us, are you?" Right. It was actually a crazy party. I don't get into all the details, but he was staring some pretty crazy shit that was going to go on at this party. Yeah, it was definitely not a party I could have brought my kids to, so it was better <laughs> yeah, that we right, just stuck right. with our fam. We had family-friendly fireworks plans that night, so it worked right. out. And, and speaking of kids, you have this is right. You have six children. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have six. What is that age range? Um, the oldest is twenty two, and the youngest is four. So it's a big oh. age range. It's a big oh, age I, range. I, yeah, that's a lot of kids still like depending on you. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> when yeah, it's sometimes people are like, I don't know how you make your podcast and have all these kids, and I'm like, well, not all of my children are still children, and that that does make a little bit of a difference. They need right. me mostly for rides and to pay for things at this point. But then I do have two little ones. Yeah, that's how most of because yeah, I have four, but but one of my oldest is twenty one, and so is not mm-hmm. in the house anymore. And so so now at this point, now we've got seventeen and sixteen and eleven. So we're just waiting to start, you know, kicking the next couple ones out, a couple more years. And <laughs> yeah, slowly. yeah, I have a twenty year old and an eighteen year old and a sixteen year old, and they're all still home. And then they obviously the eight year old and the four year old are still home <laughs> for a little while yeah. longer, at least. But you described it perfectly. Once they get into those teenage years, like it's just they're yeah. they're far less uh they require far less energy mm-hmm. at that point, but much more money. And the driving, yeah. the driving everywhere. Luckily yeah, my seventeen year old's driving yeah. now, so he can go on his own. Yeah, we need to get my sixteen year old driving because the older boys of course drive. But um she's you know, she had soccer practice, she needed new cleats, so then I had to drive her out to the sporting goods store and let let me tell you, cleats are not Soccer cleats are a lot cheaper when you can buy them at Target in the little kids section. <laughs> right. They go up great, greatly by then, especially when you get a kid that has a brand bought into the Nike branding and all of mm-hmm. that. So, yeah, m- money and driving, that's all I did yesterday. Yeah, that's pretty much every day for us, too. So, and I, I see that you were originally your, 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 I don't know if it's still your job or your job before this, you were a sign language interpreter? Well, I went to school to become a sign language interpreter. I did not work in the field. I was in school when my older kids were younger, and I took all the classes and all the interpreting classes. And then my older son, he's 22 now. He'll get a big head if I say this, but he's very, very smart. And Mm -hmm. uh, the public school wasn't really meeting his needs. And so he actually wanted at the end of second grade to start homeschooling so that he could like do things a little bit more deeper than they were doing at the school he was in. So at that time, we went ahead and pulled him out to see if homeschooling worked. And then he homeschooled until he was 16, which is when he went to college. So he homeschooled for, you know, for for many years from third grade um, until he went to college. And then my other kids started homeschooling because once you're homeschooling one, it just kind of makes sense to homeschool the rest. So I mm-hmm. I stopped doing that and I started homeschooling my kids instead. Oh, gotcha. Did I hear you just say that he went to college at 16? He started as, yeah, yeah, he went at 16 Um, because he just kind of, so I just say like his last two years of high school, he just um went to college instead. And then actually my um, 18 year old, he is technically a senior in high school, but he just goes to the local community college instead. He, as a quote unquote homeschooler, but he just takes all his classes there. Right. That's awesome. My, it's cool. They can do it. My, um, uh, 17 year old is still, he's still in high school, but half of his classes he takes at the college yeah. is able to get his high school credit and college credit at the same time for those. Now, what I, what I did know is, so I, I know about, about crime lines. Uh, but my mm-hmm. notes from Erica, she says that you produce three independent podcasts. What, el- what else do you produce besides Crime Lines? Well, I currently um, – I have a show called Impact Statement. It is on hiatus and has been for, you know, probably three years and probably will be forever. Just 
Um, sometimes shows just, I don't know, it just didn't, it was a lot of work. I didn't have a lot of time for it. I started writing for other podcasts. I worked for Parcast, Canadian True Crime. I did some Patreon stuff for Court Junkie. When I started doing that, I dropped doing um, another podcast. But I do write for a podcast called Rusty Hinges. And I guess I technically produce that. My husband hosts it, though. And it's a okay. it's a sort of, com- I, I don't know how to explain it. It's it's weird history, <laughs> true crime, but it's um, it's scripted and it is somewhat comedic. We, we say, I mean, if you like dad jokes, it's it's dad joke heavy. But um, <laughs> so when I say it's comedy, I don't want people to get the wrong idea. Like, <laughs> like it's some stand up thing. It's a lot yeah. of dad jokes about a really bad history. Jokes, yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> it's on brand for my husband. We have so many parallels in our lives. Like I was just thinking when you were talking about the the podcast you started that's been on hiatus. I have, I probably have a handful of of projects that I've started and then have yeah. gone on air quote hiatus, which means I just had to stop doing them because I I'm always biting off more than I can chew, and and then eventually l- realizing that. I can't put any more effort into this. Yeah, I started a YouTube channel last year and everything was going well, but I realized I was just spending so much time on it. And I'm like, do I really have the time for something that's not necessarily giving me the return I'm looking for? And YouTube ads are a lot like podcast ads where unless they're sponsorships, they don't pay very much. And so the... I was I was doing all this work and I was like, you know, I could just put this into my actual podcast, which is already, you know, has sponsorships and ads and give my audience. And that's where my audience is and go back to just giving mm-hmm. more content to podcasting. And so I started focusing just on the podcast again. And after having always having a different project, whether I was doing a side podcast, whether I was writing for podcasts, whether I was doing YouTube, I always had some side project. And starting in about August, I said, you know what? Crime Lines is my project that start to finish. Mm-hmm. I really feel it's made a difference. Even though I've been doing it for a few years now, I feel like everything elevated when I was like, no, this is, I just focus on this. Right. It's it's so easy in this business to get really spread out. And you're totally right. So like I had um, Zach Weaver, who's on our uh, Truth of Justice follow-ups. We had a show called Bob and Weave for a while. And I love doing the show where we just kind of chatted about current events and just kind of just open format dialogue. And we had a YouTube channel. And it was like, the I remember the first month that the show monetized. And then I, I saw my revenue from YouTube. And it was $1.41. <laughs> I was like, yeah. you did all that for a dollar? <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous. YouTube sent me, um, you know, my 1099. And I think I started in February. And I ended up, I think, making a total of $400 from February mm-hmm. to December on YouTube. And I was like, this is not where it's at for me. You know, I need to stick with my audience. Yeah. Unless you have like a million views. And yeah. Do date, you know, that's just not really the way to go. Uh, I want to last. I, uh, Erica is a classic for finding creepy facts about people. Um, and this, and this one cracks me up because I, I, I think I know what's going She said, she even writes now, now she, now she puts random creepy fact in the notes, uh, instead of just putting stuff in there. (laughs) But she says that you play a game called June's journey in your downtime. And before you respond to that, (laughs) I want to know, 
Because they're a sponsor of mine on Truth and Justice. Are, I know, are they I have a sponsor to say, for you? They are. I have to say hashtag ad. But this is... <laughs> this is a... This, I am going to say that there are sometimes, you know, they send me a game or an app or a podcast and I listen to some of it. And I'm like, okay, good enough. I like it. I'll, I, you know, I can say you might like this too. Like June's Journey could cancel today and I'd still be playing. Like I actually really yeah. like the game. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. So I had... I had Best Fiends for like three years. Did you mm-hmm. did you get did you have Best Fiends? Uh, no, no, I played yeah. it for a while too, but I, I never had it as a sponsor. I definitely got hooked into that one big time for a while, but then yeah, then the ads kept going for for three. Our our new <laughs> uh, follow up co host Janet Janet Varney just gives me shit all the time. She is I love because she knows what my schedule's like. When you start the ads out with, you know, I was just looking for a new puzzle game to <laughs> occupy my time. She says bullshit. Yeah. As soon as I saw like like the big s- secret fact is that you play June's Journey in your downtime, I'm like, I just did an ad where I said I play June's Journey in my downtime, uh, which I do. I do play it. <laughs> but- I do. I mean, my downtime is putting my kids to bed and proof listening to episodes. You know, when you have nothing mm-hmm. else to do when you're proof listening because you have to focus, but you're not actively editing. I right. play June's Journey when I do that. So like my downtime is usually multitasking, but it... It's really helpful to have something to do. My problem with it is when I get into it, then I get like I can't stop because because you're 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 finding items and the, you're finding the clues in the little in yeah. each screen, and then it and I don't I don't actually know how the game works. Like I know there's a storyline <laughs> that's happening. All I know is it just keeps giving me the same screen with more shit to find on it, and I just keep going more and more and more and more. And more, and more. I'm trying to go faster. I don't know if it matters if I go faster, but it I'm does. just trying to get more. Yeah, I, I've got the game down. I'm building my island. Like, I'm all in this game. I'm in, like, a group. <laughs> they have a, gr- a detective group thing you can join. I did that. Like, I'm I'm in the game, like, fully, fully immersed. <laughs> <laughs> fully fully invested. Um, all right, well, let's let's talk about Crime Lines. So you started yeah. Crime Lines in 2019, so you're coming. This mm-hmm. is starting your third year of it. Uh, and yes. So you walk through, like, true crime events, and you – you're pairing captivating tales with storytelling. You bring in a lot of historical and cultural context. And what I like about it is, is you really get it. You try to get into the why the crimes happen mm-hmm. on, the, yeah. on the show. So what was what was your inspiration for well for crime lines or just to become a true crime podcaster to begin with? I mean, you like most of us independent creators are yeah. not from like the audio or entertainment industry. Um, so you know, how'd you get into this? So just like I stopped doing interpreting education when my kids started homeschooling my kids ended up not continuing homeschooling and so my older kids went to school and my younger my at the time my youngest I've had one more since but he was two and I realized like how bored I was just staying at home with not a project because when I homeschooled I ran three co-ops I ran a homeschool group we were in it Mm -hmm. you know and So I didn't have anything, and I was really into podcasting. So I started a podcast in 2015 where I interviewed people about writing and their writing process and things like that. You know, it got like 90 downloads an episode, and I thought, whoo, I am really doing pretty well. 90 people. (laughs) I don't even know 90 people. Strangers are listening to my podcast. Then I had an opportunity in May 2016 to start a true crime podcast with two other people, and it was called Insight, and it ran for almost three years. It, we started with three, we ended up with two hosts, and then we ended up splitting up, basically, and um, doing our own things. And that's when 
I started a crime line. So I got into podcasting because I was bored. And I think the reason I was kind of recruited to do insight with the other people is I knew how to edit audio just because I had been doing it. You know, literally mm-hmm. Audacity and YouTube videos is how I learned. So I wasn't good at Me it, too. Exactly but I could do I it. <laughs> and even just anyone, I mean, that's a big problem with people wanting to enter podcasting is they get really intimidated by the tech side. And, you know, I don't want to be that. Well, if I could figure it out, anyone could figure it out. But, but, th- but I am going to be that person because it's, I yeah. don't know anything. And, you know, I figured it out. And now I have plugins and better programs and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah to make it sound better. But even a basic podcast, it's not that hard to edit. So I would tell if anyone listening is like, oh, I want to start a podcast, but I don't know how to edit. Figure It's not that hard. It really yeah. is just not that hard. It's like you said, like we've like now we have all kinds of paid software and plugins mm-hmm. that do all kinds of stuff to really make it sound crisp. But yeah, the basic editing, I always tell people like, if you can cut and paste a Word document, then you can edit on Audacity. <laughs> yeah, because that's pretty much all you're highlight. doing is highlight yeah, and you delete. highlight <laughs> what you want to come out and hit delete <laughs> and then delete. Yeah. It. It's that simple. Yeah, there's not much to it. There really isn't. And I'm, I tell people that it's not even your software or your editing that matters. It's about treating your space because there's only so much a software can do. So make sure you're in a small room, you're in a closet mm-hmm. with clothes hanging. You're in a blanket fort like me. You know, once you have that, you can make almost any microphone sound fine and you can do pretty much anything with editing to make it sound great. So how'd you come up with the name Crime Lines? Uh, it's just a combination. I'm like the least creative namer ever. So so I'm actually really <laughs> impressed with this. I had a homeschool group in Kansas City and it was called KC Homeschool. Like I do not know how to name anything. And so <laughs> the fact that I came up with Crime Lines is like the achievement of my life. but. It's just um, taking crime and timelines and putting them together. And that's just very much my storytelling style is I, I don't want a lot of teasers in there. I don't want a lot of drawing out dramatic. I, I want to know what happened and I want it to be clear. And a lot of the cases I like to get into are the ones that I read a synopsis of it and I'm like completely confused because the timeline's so complicated or the timeline's so important you know, that you have to go through it minute by minute to figure out what happened. And I know you do that a lot on Truth and Justice, because Mm -hmm. a lot of times someone's saying, I was here, and the police are like, oh, yeah, they could have made it across town in five minutes, murdered someone, cleaned up and gotten home. Like, (laughs) you know, so sometimes these minute by minute timelines are important. So that's the story. It goes through the timeline. And it also brings in things from things that are happening. You know, I covered a case where a man went to trial, but they really put the victim's mother almost on trial as like the, you know, the welfare mom. And it was important, I thought, for my listeners to know that was in the early 90s with, you know, Bill Clinton and the welfare reform. So that was a hot Mm -hmm. topic at the time. So the jurors, even if they weren't biased against her, they already had an idea of what a welfare mom was in their heads going into that trial. So it's just one of the, so those kind of facts I like to bring in I cover missing and murdered indigenous women cases, and I always bring in history from their tribes, or almost always, mm-hmm. um, especially in the ones I've been doing in the last year or two, just to you know give a timeline, give context. Nice. Well, it's a it's a very clever name, and you should be proud of it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I guess that's a good transition to your storytelling to talk about the. We're we're going to talk today about a case. Is the the rape and murder of Barbara Gibbons? Uh, the story's out of Connecticut. 
from 1973. Mm-hmm. Uh, 51-year-old Barbara Gibbons was raped and murdered in her home. And and then, I mean, as horrible as that is, after that, the story is just bananas, like how the, how this all shook out. So do you want to you break down the case for us? Yeah, so Barbara lived in Connecticut, um, up kind of near the where Massachusetts and New York and Connecticut all meet. And she lived there with her 18-year-old son, Peter. And Peter was a high school senior at the time. So it was September 28th, 1973. He left to go to a youth group meeting. He came home and he said he walked in the house at a very small house. And he looked in the bedroom and he saw his mom on the ground, partially nude, death rattle type breathing, blood around, and he went to the phone and called for help. And that is his story. The police arrive and they thought he seemed very calm. And that made them suspicious. Why Mm -hmm. is he so calm? He just saw this scene. Now we know that's trauma, that's shock, that's all sorts of things. So they immediately suspected him. They put him in a patrol car for three hours. They drove him to the station, to the the state troopers were handling this case. So he went to the barracks. Within, um, they let him sleep for something like four or five hours. Then they took him to take a polygraph. And he didn't understand how polygraphs work. He thought they read his mind. They thought if he lied, even if he didn't know he was lying and he thought he was telling the truth, if he failed it, that meant he was really lying. And so they told him he failed it, which he didn't. And he, and then they started saying, well, maybe you forgot. Maybe you did it and you blacked out because that happens. Mm-hmm. And so he essentially gave a confession that says, I remember stabbing my mom and nothing else. Like, I mean, his confession is the weakest thing I've ever seen in a confession. And he immediately recanted it. But they booked him and charged him with the murder of his mother. It, it, it seems like the jury must not have been too awful sure of it because so she was raped and brutally murdered she was raped with an object and there was some they said it maybe that would that was staging on um on his part to make it look like someone else did it yeah but but then he gets convicted uh, cuz he was actually convicted of manslaughter right and then yes he was and then convicted they sentenced him to like yeah they they sentenced him to like 6 to 16 years so right. like a lot of times when I see cases come across my desk for truth and justice, I'm looking, especially if it's in a state where the jury decides the sentence, it's like when you see, you know, someone's convicted of first degree murder and they got sentenced to 20 years, it's like, oh, there was a compromise that happened in that jury room. You know, right. somebody that didn't think he was guilty, agreed to vote guilty as long as the sentence was lower or something like that. Uh, but But in his case, the conviction didn't hold up for very long. No. And so, yeah, he was convicted of manslaughter, which the crime could not possibly in any way fit any of Connecticut's definitions of manslaughter. But that's what he was convicted of. They gave him a fairly light sentence and he immediately appealed and he was given um, bail pending his appeal, which is not was not uncommon in that time. Um, You don't hear it so much. Mm -hmm. So he actually went home to well, he went and lived with a friend's family that community was so behind him. One, they paid his bail. They mortgaged their homes to pay for his defense. And he went back to high school to finish high school after he was convicted of killing his mother, because that's how sure the community was that he didn't do it, that they were okay Mm -hmm. with him going back to high school with other children. And so he, um, he appealed. He had a lot of 
he got famous people on his side. An author had come in, a writer came in, a journalist, and she started researching it, and she took it to Arthur Miller, who was a playwright who lived in Connecticut. He got with the New York Times. They did a short series of articles about how he's innocent. Uh, They paid for a new appellate attorney and also an investigator to start looking into things. So this Mm -hmm. really, I mean, his appeal really started, he he had a great appeal because he was able to afford it because people were paying for it. Mm-hmm. So what did they end up finding out for the for his appeal? The appeal was um, interesting. They found out that, so one of the things found at the scene that was never explained was a fingerprint on the back door. And mm-hmm. Pete, the back door was not used by the family because it opened into the bed, the only bedroom in the house. So they did not use the back door because it was to a bedroom. And so The fact that there was a fingerprint there, the door was open, that seemed significant for Peter's defense. Well, they found out whose fingerprint it was leading up to the hearing for a new trial, and it turned out to be a guy named Timothy. He was 16 at the time of the murder, and he and his brother Michael, who was 18, were friends with Peter, but Barbara had banned them from the house because Michael had enlisted in the military and changed his mind (laughs) pretty quickly. And had Uh to try to find a way to get kicked out. So he said he was gay. And he said that Peter could could verify that he was gay. And an army inspector actually went, like an investigator went to the house and said, do you know if this guy's gay or not? And Peter's, oh, yeah, 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 I know. Well, his mom, Barbara, the victim, whether she thought he was trying something with her son, whether she thought she was just homophobic, we don't know. but. When Michael got discharged on this for this and was back in town, she would taunt him. So the fact that his brother's fingerprint is then in the house when he and she and she banned them from the house. So they shouldn't have been there. And his fingerprint was found on the back door on the night of the murder. Um, that seemed pretty significant. They also had some witness statements like Michael's alibi witness. Um, changed course. She recanted and said, well, I was dating him. I didn't want to get involved. So I said yes, but he actually wasn't home. A lot of, there were some other evaluations and stuff. And the judge said that based on new evidence, like the fingerprint, and then also based on the prosecution not having turned over statements from Timothy and Michael's family to the defense, that he was going going to get a new trial. And so He's getting a new trial. They can't charge him for anything except manslaughter because of double jeopardy. He was acquitted of murder. And the prosecutor, John Bianchi, said, all right, we're going to retry this case. And then a few months later, he was on the golf course and he died of a massive heart attack right there on the golf course. Mm -hmm. And the new prosecutor came in, new state's attorney said, I'm going to retry this case. And then he looked at the file and he found that Bianchi had withheld basically an alibi statement that verified Peter's story. And it was a very credible witness. It was a state trooper, actually. And the story here is that Peter said he he left the youth center, got home, saw his mom, made all these phone calls, and help came. In that situation, he had no no time to have killed her and cleaned up and all of that. 
Well, the state was like, no, no, he left earlier. Ignore all the witnesses who said no, he didn't. Um, He got home. He actually had 15, 20 minutes. So we actually have this bigger window. Well, the state trooper shut that window and made it and backed up Peter again. And the prosecution withheld it. The trooper had seen Peter that night and the prosecution had withheld it. So it makes you think. How many wrongfully convicted people are really just one prosecutor dropping dead or retiring from mm-hmm. getting that exculpatory evidence that they withheld? Yeah, and this is a just I love I love to highlight cases like this because of the fact that here we have a guy that I don't remember if we said this or not, but he but he eventually confessed after they lied to him about mm-hmm. failing the polygraph yeah. and interrogated him for hours and hours and hours. Gave him the whole maybe you don't remember mm-hmm. routine, and he confessed. And then later we find there's clear evidence that he, not only he didn't do it, he couldn't have done it. He was on he was miles away at the time of the murder. Yep. So I always like any any chance we get to highlight a case where someone who confessed to a crime is provably innocent. I think that's really important to help people understand when you know we bring cases to them, especially with truth and justice, where someone might have confessed and they're like, well, no one would confess if they were. Innocent. It literally happens all the time. And we're lucky enough to have some examples like this where we can prove that it happened. The people do confess if it with the right with the right kind of manipulation, especially younger people, uh are can easily be manipulated into providing a false confession. Yeah, Peter thought the police were on his side. Peter thought the police were talking Mm -hmm. to him about what happened because they were all on the same side wanting to know what happened to his mom. And he even, like, he even asked the state trooper at one point, like, when there's, like, a lull, he was like, so what kind of grades do you need in high school to become a state trooper? Because I'm interested in becoming a state trooper. Like, he really thought he was talking to just people he knew. And he did actually know some of the people who did talk to him that day. And Mm -hmm. so he really had, he thought they were helping him. And there are two books on the case. One is Death in Canaan. And she reprints the transcripts of his interviews so you can mm-hmm. go through it and you realize at one point they say well is it possible you have a lapse in memory and you don't remember it and he goes well how would i know that because if it's a lapse in memory i don't remember having it and i was like right he wasn't trying to smart out to the smart mouth them he was just trying to understand he asked if he could see a psychologist because he thought mm-hmm. well maybe they could help me figure out what's going on he's like maybe i need to go to the hospital like, he was confused. He had a few hours of sleep. He hadn't eaten. He was 18. He was still in high school. Um, his He just saw his mom brutally murdered. Um, the four or five hours he slept, he ended up, like, having a nightmare about it. And this is this is what's happening as he's being questioned. And they right. were not leaving unless they got a confession. And the confession they got was very weak and... There was a knife found in the house that had um, rem- like blood on the blade, not dripping, like they had to do tests to even find it. Someone had rinsed it off. In his confession, he named a different um, weapon. So even his confession doesn't match the evidence. And his mm-hmm. confession was vague. There's, it's one of those confessions you look at it and you're like, why? Like this gets filed for later investigation. This doesn't, this doesn't get someone arrested. But it did. Now, the state police did do a reinvestigation in 1977, and it was such a joke that they had to rescind their report. 
The governor said rescind it. The state's attorney said it was contrived. They basically started with the Peter did it theory and reverse engineered the evidence to fit. And they came up with the story saying, when Peter got home, Barbara was outside. He ran her over. Then he dragged her in the house, staged everything because she did have more injuries. I mean, she was stabbed, but she also had broken legs. She had broken ribs. So they're like, oh, well, Mm -hmm. all of that's from the car for whatever reason, running her over, and then Peter doing all this stuff. And they come up with this story that is that is bizarre. It doesn't match the evidence. It states evidence that's not even evidence. And they ended up re- withdrawing the report, and then the um, the commissioner, commander, whoever ran it, ended up retire- retiring, <laughs> resigning, leaving yeah. shortly after. And then they also, at the same time, had a one-man grand jury investigation, which is something that's somewhat unique to that area. They don't do this everywhere. It's a judge who basically can subpoena people and run an investigative grand jury. They did it in the Martha Moxley case. So he developed a list of names that he thought the police should investigate. And he, there were five names. They're under seal. We still don't know who they were. We do know Peter's name was not on it. And so they do have the the names, they have the information, they could reinvestigate this. But, I mean, that was in 1977 that um, the names were, the grand jury report came out. And, I mean, 1977, and they've not made an arrest, obviously. Right. And I, I read that in 2004, the case was reopened, but still nothing's happened since yeah. then. Yeah, nothing's happened and they do have they do have people who have come forward like there's a state trooper who came forward he said I or you know arrested or pulled someone over and the guy like spontaneously confessed to the murder. So they they have these like leads come in but they're not um necessarily solid. I do know that Timothy and Michael's family has been under a cloud of suspicion obviously with the fingerprint mm-hmm. and um in that situation though I I mean, I don't think there's a case against them either. Like, if you if you went and I mean, they're they're they are reasonable alternative suspects for sure. But if you built a case against them, you really don't have anything um, right. except that fingerprint. Which there's a number of ways it could have been in the house. Yeah. Well, then, sadly, now we're coming up on almost 50 years since yeah. the crime happened. It's probably not super likely to be solved. Uh, but you can get the full story. What do you do? You know off the top of your head which episode number this is that you covered um, on Crimelines? I don't know, but it's a, it's really recent. So if you just if people just scroll back, probably a couple episodes from now. Um, it so it came out in February 2022. So it's pretty okay. recent. Great. So you can find it, find it there. Her name is Charlie Worrell. The podcast is called Crimelines. Check it out. It could be your next big true crime binge. Charlie, thanks so much for taking time talking. Thank you. True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. 
Again, that web address is truecrimebinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another true crime binge.